So we're going to pick up from where we last left off on this theme of highly flammable, looking through the book of Acts. And the last time we looked at this subject together, we looked at a miracle that had took place, a pretty staggering miracle that took place of a man that had been lame since birth, and he went to beg at the gate, beautiful, and Peter and John, on the way to the temple, they saw him, and they rem- you remember them saying, silver and gold we don't have, what we have we give you in the name of Jesus, rise up and walk. And a man that had never learned to walk in his life, he'd been lame since birth, he was now 40 years of age, and he just got up and he began to not only walk, but he walked, he skipped, he leapt, he praised God. And it caused a bit of a ruckus around him. And that's where we're going to pick up the story today. Because we're going to see that when this good thing happens, that there were controversies around it. And you might think that when bad things happen in a community, that there can be um, a negative response from a community that's around But I have noticed, and in this story we notice it, that when good things happen, there's still a sense of chaos that can come in a community in response to good things. We shouldn't be surprised when we find controversy on the back of good, righteous things happening. Good things can can shake situations equally as much as bad things of course they shake them for good reasons and good objectives but that shaking causes people who are holding on to the things that are shaken to feel shaken themselves and therefore they do everything they can to stop that sense of vulnerability that they feel over the years I've met family members who have gone absolutely off the wall because a member of their family has given their life to Jesus. A good thing has happened to a member of their family, and yet it has caused chaos in the home, the family. I've met people over the years that they've been in dens of drug-taking, and one of the people decides to get clean and those who are still in the den, they get, you know, they, they've lost their friend now. Yeah. A good thing has happened to their friend, but they've lost their friend. And they feel disturbed by that. I've seen people that one of their friendship groups finds lifelong love and decide to get married. And although it's a good thing and their friends are happy for them, it shakes the world of those who are in that friendship group and it causes them to feel a bit shaken. Of course, everything that happens can cause an earthly response, but I want us to understand that when God does amazing things, it isn't just the impact on our emotions or on our families or on the circumstances that surround us. There is a an implication in the spirit that causes a greater sense of disturbance than we even see in the natural. There is an enemy that we have that we read that he was an angel in heaven, an archangel, and pride grew in his heart. He said, I'm going to become like God. As a result of that, he was ejected from heaven And he now roams the earth seeking who he may steal, kill, and destroy. And he 
started his rebellion with pride in his heart. And when we see that there are people that are clutched from his grasp, it impacts his pride. And he doesn't say, oh, well, another person got saved at Rediscover this week. That's okay. I've got many more. He doesn't say that. He says, I am going to get them back. You know, it's not just about salvation, though. If you have a dream in your heart and you step out for the Lord and you take a leap of faith into the promises of God, you might expect that the response to that is heavenly bliss and wonder and joy. The reality is, you have just picked a fight. And do not be surprised when it feels like all hell breaks loose against you. I want to bring this message this morning as we look at this story because I believe that God wants to do incredible, amazing things through ordinary people like you and like me. But when we step out for God, there is an attack, there is a full force of the enemy, and the Bible says we do not need to fear, but we do need to be aware of his schemes. And we read in this story that there was, a, there was a chaos and a response to this man that had been healed of this physical condition. And we're going to look at this ruckus, this response, this chaos, this challenge that came up to the people of God in response to something going well. Let me ask a quick survey. Who has ever stepped out for God and it may be as simple as going and giving a word to someone or you feel a nudge of the Spirit to give someone a phone call and encourage them and you step out and you feel great about it. How many of you have ever done that? Okay. Next question. How many of you have ever done that, have found that it feels like you can often get a fight back? Who's felt that? Look at all these hands. Keep them up a moment. Look at that. Because that's the reality of what happens in our lives is that there is a spiritual fight. And the Bible says that no weapon formed against the people of God will prosper. The Bible says that we have been given armor that protects us from every wily scheme of the enemy. But... For us to think that because we've stepped out for God that we're not going to experience anything of a fight is naive. Let's look at Acts chapter 3 verse 11. We're going to expository look through a number of verses over chapter 3 and 4 and see a bit of a theme emerge. So it says in verse 11, this is the man that was healed, the lame man who was now walking, leaping and praising God. It says, while he was holding on to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran toward them in what is called Solomon's colonnade. They ran towards them. Have you ever had a large group run towards you? It's quite an intimidating thing. If you imagine yourself in the center of Exeter, 
and some, something has happened and suddenly it says all the people, everybody just turns on their window shopping, they come out of the stores and they begin to run towards you. That's quite a fierce, intimidating sight. Let me, let me just give you an encouragement here. Never fear people running towards you in respect to stepping out for God. Never fear it. Say, well, I don't like the attention. I don't like the profile. I don't like people noticing me. We'll come to that in a moment. But I want you to know the God who is able to lift up the lame man and cause him to walk and leap and praise God is the same God who can protect you when every intimidating force comes against you. The same God, the same wonderful miracle-working God can protect you. And I love this sense of it wasn't just Peter and John and the healed man that were together, because you remember, Jesus had told them that there was another that would be with them always. The Holy Spirit. They weren't alone. The Spirit of the Lord was there. And as this intimidatory sight came towards them, it did not cause them to fear because the Holy Spirit is with them. Let's look on verse 12. When Peter saw this, he addressed the people. What did he say? He said, fellow Israelites, why are you amazed at this? Why do you stare at us as though we had made him walk by our own power or godliness? There were two questions that Peter posed here. The first question was this, why are you amazed at this miracle? You see, Peter and John were speaking to Israelites. This was the, the nation that had the prophets. We mentioned earlier on the story of Moses and the Red Sea and the miracles of provision in the wilderness. We read the stories of Elijah and Elisha. We read the miracles of Joshua walking around the walls of Jericho. We read miracle after miracle, story after story, provision after provision. And many of these miracles would have been told as stories. Also, you remember that it was only a few months previous that this same city would have been in uproar with large crowds of people following around this man called Jesus of Nazareth. And they were following him around and seeing incredible miracles take place. So this was a nation that wasn't secular in its outlook. It was a nation that was postured to understand that God intervenes, God steps in, and they had seen miracles in the recent months leading up to this incident. So when Peter and John said, why are you amazed at this? It was a fairly significant question to ask them. Why? Why are you so stunned that somebody could have the intervention of God? Why? It was an undeniable miracle. Many of them had seen this man 
for many years begging, week after week, day after day, year after year. So it wasn't like they could say he wasn't really ill. They knew. They, they saw him for years, and now they're seeing him leap. They knew it was a miracle, so they couldn't deny that. And Jesus, among them, a few months previous, had been killed. And maybe that was it. Maybe that was the source of the miracles has now been killed. So they've ended. They've gone. They've stopped. I wonder how many people who were unwell with physical ailments now felt that with Jesus dying, that they'd lost their opportunity to get well. Hope had gone. Conviction that this could happen had gone. But also, there were a lot of religious people around. And they hoped that that would be the end of it. They hoped that Jesus being crucified would be the end of any of this weird stuff taking place in their society. Because it was deeply inconvenient to them. So the first question, why are you amazed at this? The second question, why do you stare at us? There's a desire in every sector of society to make heroes. Hollywood's films and blockbusters are, always tend to have a protagonist of a, of a hero and a villain. There's always something in the story. And we recognize that when we look back into the Old Testament, that the nation of Israel wanted a hero, a king. In fact, they said to God, we want a king. We want a hero like the other nations. And God said, I am your king. And they said, no, 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 we, we, want, we want like a palace, we want a throne, we want someone that we can see walk through our streets with carriages, and we want someone to be our king. And God said, well, do you realize that there will be consequences to that that are not all positive? And they said, we want a king. So God relented and gave them a king. And we read, much of the Old Testament is a story about the problems that those kings caused, the poor choices they made that led a nation into difficult situations. And we live in a society today where people want a king. I don't mean a royal, where you're royalist or not. I, I mean that there's a desire in all of our hearts to have heroes, people that we look up to. Uh, there's a, an understanding in British culture and the British media that the British media loves to make heroes and then loves to knock them down. But that's not just the media, that's us. That's all of our hearts. Today we have leadership crisis everywhere. In politics, in business, in government, in church. There's leadership crisis. And for a long time... People have sat elevated on thrones with titles, with accolades, and they've been the heroes of the story. And just in the last few years, there has been an increased awareness of the frailty of many of those heroes. There have been heroes that people thought were sort of untouchable, they were wonderful, that in Christian circles they were righteous. And it's been revealed that actually they were more human than we thought. They weren't the heroes of the story. 
There's much controversy around church leadership, and I'm sure you've come across some of the, the discussions around celebrity pastors. That sense of how do people elevate themselves in such a way. But let me tell you how they elevate themselves. Because we want a king. Because we want a hero or heroes. And as a, resu- as a result of that, there are people who will then take those thrones, take those places. But God's design is always that you and I see him as our king. Him as our leader. He's the only one who will never fail and let us down. He's the only one who has no weakness and no frailty. And in you know, all of these conversations around how awful it is that we've got celebrity pastors in the world, you know, with millions of followers on social media, with videos as soon as they put them out, and books as soon as they publish them, that they get sold in mass numbers, and they sort of talk about how awful a thing this is. But we need to recognize it's not just them, it's us. It's our desire to follow some people with, that have got skin on. Although the reality is that most of them are the other side of a YouTube channel. We can't quite touch them, we can't quite be in the same room as them a lot of the time. But there's a desire for us to have our heroes. And we're seeing churches across the world being rocked as they realize, whoa, this person is human. This person has a weakness or weaknesses. The two dynamics in such a situation is the propensity of the masses to want a king and the pride in the individual hearts to feel they have an entitlement to be the king. Entitlement's a horrible thing to see. I've, you know, I've seen some of, and I'm not going to mention any names, but I've seen some people who have previously been reputed as you know, world leaders in terms of like Christianity and leading churches that are global phenomenons and so on. And I see them, after they've been stood down, appealing on social media. Of, of, and there's an entitlement. It's like, how dare you do this to me? Yeah. And pride is an awful thing. And I love Peter's response here. Because this could have been a moment to increase their social media following. This could have been a moment to be the catalyst of, hey, you're the new Jesus. Look at the crowds following you now. Could have been a few agents, have a chat with them and say, hey, we've got a book deal lined up for you. There's a conference that we'd love you to come and speak at. And I love Peter's response. He said, why are you staring at us? Why? He wasn't thinking this was a moment for him. Before you or I tweet or share a story or upload a video or give a testimony, why don't we come to a place in our heart that says, I don't want people to stare at me. I want them to see Jesus. See, the miracle they absolutely knew did not happen as a result of their own godliness and righteousness. And this is quite a 
illuminating thing for us to understand. Because over the years, I've seen people that move in profound words of knowledge, prophetic insight. They pray for people and see healings take place. And yet it comes out years later that they were living a duplicitous life and they weren't close to Jesus. And I've seen Christians get very discouraged and disillusioned and say, how could God work through their life when they weren't living righteously? Peter and John knew the answer here. It wasn't through their own godliness that this man was healed. It was the power of God. If we as a church think that we deserve a move of the Spirit, if we think we deserve a new building, if we think we deserve a revival, if we think that we've earned it, we've prayed a long time, God, We've given our best energies. Lord, don't you realize I've had some sleepless nights about this? God, don't you realize that we've contended when it's inconvenient? God, don't you realize that we've given when it's sacrificial? If we think that we've earned anything, if we think that we've deserved anything, if we think that we're entitled to anything, then the grace of the Lord will lift. And it does lift eventually. May not happen overnight. You see, Saul, King Saul, who was anointed king, we see him still operating as king after the anointing had lifted off his life. The anointing was now on David. David didn't look like a king, but he had the anointing of a king. Saul looked like a king, but he didn't have the anointing. And we see that Saul's effectiveness begins to wane and diminish if we don't keep our hearts fixed on deflecting the attention off us and saying, why are you staring at us, Exeter? Why are you staring at us, Southwest? Look to Jesus. If we lose sight of that and think for one moment that we're entitled to this, then the grace will begin to lift. That applies in all our life. If you think for one moment that the skills that you take into your workplace, the relational capabilities you have, if you think about the business successes you have, if you think it's because of me, now God has put gifts and grace on your life. God blesses his people with gifting. But God has called his people to step out of what you can do in your own strength and in what you can do in his strength. There's another level. There's another level for you in your business. There's another level for you in your relationships. There's another level for you in your community. And it starts with, why are you staring at me? Look to Jesus, the author, the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. And church, we need to get our eyes off others and we need to put our eyes on Christ. So many people come to see me and they want me to fix their issues. And I, and I understand the heart. You know, I'm sort of leading the church and they, can you help me? 
The reality is the best I can do is to lift their eyes off me and to lift them to Jesus. If you come to a church on a Sunday and you say, I've had a tough week. I feel like it's been a difficult time. Come on, worship team. I'm looking to you now. Come on. Give me the songs I want. Give me the songs I need. Give me the songs that are going to edify me. Look. No, they're not here to be looked at. They're here to say, why are you staring at us? Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. Church, it's time for us to lift our eyes from one another and to put our eyes on Jesus. In your conversations, stop trying to be Mr. or Mrs. Fix-It. Because there's a need and insecurity in our life that that begins to attend to. Peter said, why are you looking at us? Now we know Peter's got his issues. We see Peter denying Jesus. We see Peter hothead. We see him chopping the ear off. One of the guards who comes to arrest Jesus, Peter's got some insecurities and some issues going on. But even he, after an encounter with the Holy Spirit, could say, why are you staring at me? Look to Jesus. Why are you looking to conferences, to YouTube channels, Thank God for all of those resources. But why don't you lock your place in the why don't you lock yourself in the one place that our true hope is found? In the presence of the King of all kings. He has everything you and I need. Let's skip forward to chapter four. Let's look at the first four verses. While they were speaking to the people, the priests the captain of the temple police, and the Sadducees confronted them. So this is elevated now. The legal people were there. The leaders were there. And it said they confronted them because they were annoyed. So imagine a little bit of edge in their words, a little bit of anger, frustration. They were annoyed that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. So they seized them. And they took them into custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. They were being arrested. They were being seized. They were being the subject of annoyed, arrogant behavior, and at the same time, 5,000 people were giving their lives to Christ Jesus. How many of you find that? Sometimes there's a, there seems like a dynamic that not everything in our life feels us in a place of blessing. Sometimes the place of the greatest containment is the time of the greatest blessing in our lives. The greatest frustrations bring the greatest miracles. Hold on in the middle of a backlash, church. God is at work. Among all the controversy and the accusations, 5,000 people had started to follow Jesus. I long for the days when we can, on a Sunday, we can gather together and say, hey, this week, 3,000 people gave their lives to Christ over our various campuses around the Southwest. There's another village that has reported 99% of people coming to faith in Jesus. And that one person's now put their house on the market to leave because they can't handle being surrounded by Christians. 
There'll always be people who are against and are problematic and, and offended by the gospel. But wouldn't it be amazing to see that happen? And I believe, you know, if we get this right, if we are a, if we are a highly flammable church, if it's not about us but it's about Him, I believe anything can happen. We have to stop thinking that our past experience is determining our future. The thing that determines our future is the Lord and what He can do. And He is looking for people who will say, I'm in. I'm in. Peter and John, they were in. Started out with one healing. Now they're arrested. 5,000 people giving their lives to Christ. Let's read on, verse 5. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. After they had Peter and John stand before them, they began to question them. Uh, this is the nub of it. By what power or in what name have you done this? Incidentally, you notice that they spent the night in prison. There are some stories in the book of Acts, and we'll come across these in later weeks, where people were released from prison. There was a time when Peter wandered out, thought he was dreaming. And he was delivered and set free from the prison. There was another time when an earthquake shook. And they didn't leave, they stayed. Along with convincing all of the other prisoners to stay. That's a greater miracle. But then there were times they were exactly where God wanted them. Sometimes our places of confinement are not about our physical environments, they're about the state of our heart. I think in that prison that night, they were thinking about this man who was walking, leaping, and praising God. I believe they were giving thanks to the Lord for the 5,000 people who had given their lives to Christ. I think they were saying, Holy Spirit, you promised us you'd give us the words. We trust you. Jesus. By what power or in what name have you done this? Now again, you remember that this is them addressing Israelites. And in the Israelite culture, there was a strong significance about Blessing being passed on, rights. You remember the significance of the father's blessing on the firstborn. You see the, the desperate scenes of Jacob and Esau and how, you know, like he was tricked, father, and he gave Jacob the blessing, but Esau was like, have you got nothing left to give me? Have you got nothing left you can pour into my life? And there's a, an, a sense of importance and understanding about the significance of having an impartation from one to another, of the kings weren't appointed, the kings were anointed. It was God setting up and establishing in place those that he has called. That was embedded into this Israelite culture. And here they were asking these men, Peter and John, who had just performed a Jesus-style miracle and said to him, said to them, who said you can do that? Who said you can do that? that? Those are words I find the enemy says to me quite often. Do you hear those words? Who said you can do that? Who said? Did you get permission? 
I believe we're all called to be accountable to one another. We've got a wonderful team of people here. I'm so blessed by the the safety, I believe, that we have in our wonderful elders and church session. Then we are part of the Elim churches. There's accountability to our Elim leaders. And there's safety and there's balance and there's checks. But all of us, we do what the Lord asks us. He anoints and appoints. And I hear these words regularly. Who said you can do that? You know, a number of years ago when we began to think about planting churches across the southwest, and for those of you visiting this morning, we got a vision that we'll be catalytic in raising up leaders to plant 100 churches across the southwest over a 10-year period. When we began to think, how can we do that? So we have to invest in leaders. We have to invest in people. We have to help ordinary people do extraordinary things. And we can't just throw them in the deep end and say, learn to swim. We have to try and teach them to swim so that when they go in the deep end, that there's a sense of preparation for that moment. And we began to think about launching this thing called the Church Planting Academy. If I'm honest with you, even though I had a whole sense of God speaking, we talked about it as a team, produced a little video, and the video went out across Facebook and social media across the country, and it was in response to something we believe God had said, and that was, there are people all over the UK that I've called to plant churches in the Southwest. Call them in. But you know when that video went live? I heard those words. Who said you can do that? Whose authority do you have? What right do you have? Isn't it one of the most destructive and deceptive words of the enemy on the church? Who said you can do that? Church, it's time to break the power of the whispers of darkness over our lives. It's time to rise up. It's time to hear the words, the Lord has told me I can do this. The Lord has spoken. The Lord has promised. Who said you can do that? You see, we can have authoritative voices that get their authority from their education or from their learning. We see on news channels all the time, there might be a news story, and they bring someone who has spent years and got a PhD from a university to come and to talk as the expert. They have a voice that's authoritative on the subject. Then there are people who maybe have not done that through an academic way, but maybe they're tradesmen and they've learned how to construct things. And then they take an apprentice on and with authority, they apprentice the other person. They pass on what they've learned with authority. But it says in verse 13, it says, When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated, and untrained men, they were amazed and they recognized yes. what? Been with Jesus. Yes. That they had been, been with Jesus. Jesus. Hallelujah. It's all it needs. 
That is all it needs to be with Jesus. They were bold and they had authority and they had wisdom because the spirit of wisdom and revelation was alive in them by the power of the spirit. We get our authority not by our theology degrees, not by how long you've served on a team in a church, not by how many sermons we've preached. We get our authority by being with Jesus. There are too many critics and there are too many know-it-alls. There are too many people who know the right words to say and the right thoughts to give and feel that as a result of having that natural wisdom that they have authority. But unless your words and your authority come from the power of the Holy Spirit, which comes from leaning into Him, which comes from pressing into Him, which comes from spending time with Him, you might have a position, you might have a title, but you do not have heavenly authority. What's in our hearts is more important than what's in our mouth. The motivation, the desires, the, serv- the servant-heartedness, the, don't, why are you looking at me? Look at him. Spiritual authority doesn't come from position, appointment, ordination or ambition it comes from craving to spend time with Jesus to be fully surrendered and filled with him let's look at a few more verses before we close it says after they ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin they conferred among themselves saying what should we do with these men for an obvious sign has been done through them clear to everyone living in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that this does not spread any further among the people, let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in the name again. So they called for them, and they ordered them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Another question they asked was, what shall we do with these men? What arrogance. People, governments, political ideologies, philosophies, atheists, media, have often asked this same question. What are we going to do with them? The church does not fit our narrative. It does not fit our design. It does not fit our philosophy. What are we going to do with them? Like as if they have any power. Like as if they have any authority over the church of Jesus Christ. Now listen, some of these ideologies and philosophies and governments have managed to limit physical movement through imprisonment. But they've been unable to stop the church spreading from heart to heart like wildfire. Because there's nothing can stop the name of Jesus advancing through the world. They might be able to stop our gatherings through persecution. They might be able to remove our platforms by closing our social media accounts down. But no one can stop the gospel of Jesus Christ advancing throughout the earth. This gospel will be preached to the ends of the earth. 
The glory of the Lord will cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. So they said this. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. I wonder how many of us need someone to actually threaten us to get us to stop talking to people about Jesus. Many believers today have acceded to such a wish without any threat over their life whatsoever. And the church is silent. We're so disguised, blended. We so don't stand out any longer. Like we don't wear cheesy t-shirts anymore. We don't wear Jesus sandals with long socks. Sorry if you got those on this morning. We, we don't have bumper stickers on our cars. We don't have fish on the back bumper any longer, just in case we cut someone up and we give Jesus a bad testimony. If you're going to put a fish, put it on the front of the car, because if you're kind and you let people out, they see it. If you cut them up, they don't. Or maybe just drive nice. Some don't share testimonies any longer. Some don't even attend gatherings anymore. Sit in their home, and it's a secret, private faith. For many people, the enemy says, we don't need to do anything. No threats needed. Just let them get on with it. It's not going to spread through them. Just leave them alone. They're not going to worry us. But look at Peter and John's answer. Peter and John answered, and I love the respect that so often comes in the interactions of the New Testament with power. It says, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable, say that word, unable. unable. We are unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. May we, the people of God, be unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. If we, in the months ahead, move into a new building and we see wonderful increased facilities and we're able to do more activities and more programs, that's not it. The church... It's not what we do when we gather or where we gather. The church is the people of God being unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. Unable to not share it. Unable. Let's pray together. Maybe you're mindful of threats that sit over your life. Intimidatory words of who do you think you are? Whose authority are you doing this in? Maybe you recognize this pride. And maybe actually you've been afraid to take a step forward because you recognize that pride is there and you don't want people to look at you, but there's something in you that does want people to look at you and so you've just decided to do nothing just in case you can't handle it. And the Lord sees all of that. He sees the mix and the, the, mis- the mystery of our hearts and well-being. And Scripture says the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. He sees the complexity of our life because He's the hero, not us. He's the Savior, not us. 
He's the source of power, not us. He's the source of transformation in our communities, not us. Maybe there's been a gaffer tape on your mouth and you've actually been unable to speak. Not unable not to speak. Just take a moment. What is it that you've heard this morning that's the most pertinent to you? You might say all of them. Well, you might want to make a note of all those things and spend the next few weeks and months going through them one by one. But for today, I'm going to ask you to choose the most pertinent. What's one response, one decision that you can make after today? It's a journey. Holy Spirit, I pray you come and you bring comfort, encouragement, strength, courage to each of our hearts in order to step forward in whatever way you've called us to step forward. Jesus, we thank you that nothing will stop the purposes of God on this earth. And we get to serve you in that. Help us to serve you really well. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Your goodness and your kindness. I don't know everybody here, maybe there's some people here this morning that have never received this transforming message of Jesus. See, that man in the story was lame he was unable to walk in the physical but until we know Jesus we're not able to enter and rise up into the things that God has for us in the spirit but it requires us to come to a place of acknowledging our need of him and our need is largely around the desperate shamefulness of our lives the sinfulness and we can't enter his presence carrying that shame but the good news is that Jesus, as he died on the cross, he said, I'm here to take away your guilt. But it requires us to say, Jesus, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please take my guilt from me. And would you give me your righteousness in place of my guilt? And then he wants to fill us so that we... Don't just come to church on a Sunday, but we walk a journey of getting to know Jesus daily in our lives. And that daily walk with him alongside us brings transformation and change. But this morning, the past can be completely eradicated of the shame of your past. It can be taken away in a moment if you will pray a prayer inviting Jesus. So would you just join me, everybody, in praying this prayer? Would you pray it out loud to encourage those who may be saying it for the first time? And it goes like this. Jesus, I thank you that you gave your life on the cross for me. I'm sorry I've left you out of my life and I've made a mess. Please forgive me of all the mess in my thoughts, the mess in my attitudes, and the mess in my actions. Please wash me, cleanse me on the inside, and fill me with your righteousness. 
And also fill me with your spirit that I might follow you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Listen, we could ask you to close your eyes now and say, if you pray that prayer, then gently put it up and no one will see it. But this is a family. We're not just a group of snotty people. We're a family of ordinary people who have experienced the extraordinary God changing our lives. And I know that if anyone in this room prayed that prayer for the first time, that everyone in this room would give you the biggest welcome if you put your hand up and said, yeah, that was me. So anybody this morning prayed that prayer for the first time? Come on. Amen. Come on, let's welcome these with our hands raised. Amen. 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 Do you mind if I just push you a little bit further? Those who've raised their hands, would you stand? Is that right? Come on, let's welcome them again. And come on. Could we just reach out our hands towards them? Lord Jesus, thank you for these precious young men and women. Lord, we pray that this won't just be a moment where they remember doing something, but it's be a moment they remember the love of God just transforming their hearts and their lives and I pray that you will know the love of God like it's a love you've been searching for all your life and it's a love that you can only find in him and I pray that you'll know his love all over your lives so bless them Lord we pray bless them in Jesus name Amen